welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your input and your feedback on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com or connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Grammy Adventure. Please follow or subscribe to my podcast. It's free so you won't miss an episode and ask your family and friends to do the same. You can subscribe to the monthly newsletter by visiting my website, adventureswithgrammy.com and clicking the newsletter sign-up link. My guest today is Tess Cox, who is a physician's assistant with a practice in Norfolk, Virginia, affiliated with the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters. Tess is an author who is writing books for parents and grandparents about illnesses and viruses and health and general information about medical issues that impact our little kiddos. Today, she's going to talk about some of the common things that children encounter and help parents decide when is the best time to contact the child's physician. Welcome, Tess, to the podcast. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's great to be here. And um, hello to all of of your listeners. I'm a physician assistant. Um, I practice pediatrics. As of this October, I will have been practicing some form of pediatrics for 40 years. I also have a master's degree in counseling, which I've found to be very helpful um, as I've been walking with parents uh, through the years. Tell us about your new website and your new endeavor. I have started a new website and will soon be creating a a podcast as well uh, to support parents with regards to medical information. And so it's called Simple Medicine for Parents. And the website is simplemedicine.net, N-E-T dot net. It's going to provide uh, information that I share on future podcasts, but I'm really going to be concentrating on creating uh, simple, informative courses that parents can listen to on different subjects related to pediatric medicine. The whole reason why I decided to do this is over the last couple of decades of my career, I've just noticed a real change in the base medical knowledge that parents come into the office with. There's been a a knowledge gap that's been created. And I I don't know if it's just that certain things are no longer being passed down from one generation to the next, or if it's just that there's so much on Google and an internet search that people become really confused. But I just noticed that a lot of parents are very fearful. They're acting and making decisions out of fear and not out of empowerment or confidence in their own knowledge of just simple medicine and medical techniques and tools that they can use to treat their children at home and and not feel like they have to run to the doctor or run to the emergency room every time something comes up just because they, they don't know what to do. Certainly COVID, 
has had a big impact on access to medical care for families. And I just felt like I needed to step in and provide simple information and tools, put tools in parents' toolbox that they can pull out and use when their child begins to get sick. There's going to be just information about different conditions and what causes them and what parents can do to help their children get through it without having to go to the emergency department. There are going to be tools that they can use at two o'clock in the morning when everything hits the fan and there's nobody around and they're all alone, you know, in the middle of the night with a sick crying child without it being confusing or complicated. That is fantastic. As a mom who had a child who often was crying at two o'clock in the morning because of illness. I'm sure that would have been a lot of comfort for me. I do want to add a little disclaimer here that this episode of the podcast is not intended to give medical advice, but simply information. And if you have, if listeners have specific concerns about a child being sick, to please contact that child's pediatrician or the family's primary care physician. One of the issues that I know I always was concerned about was when my child ran or when one of my children ran a fever. So can you address what fevers are, what the purpose is for the body, and how should parents and grandparents react? Fever is one of my very favorite subjects to talk about. This will be a lot of fun. I'm sure every parent has had the experience of their child feeling a little bit warm, um, running a fever. I think a lot of parents do get upset and scared when their children start to run a fever because all they think in their head, they've heard about fever seizures and, and the damage you know that fever can do. And I just really want to turn that on its head because a lot of that stuff is just, is just not true or it's, it's myth. So let's talk about fever. Fever is uh, an elevation of the body's core temperature and it's regulated by several different things, but mostly by the immune system and the brain. The reason why we develop a fever is the body's immune system recognizes that there's some kind of germ ordinarily. Now I'm not talking about extreme cases of, you know, weird things causing fever, but just for your average typical child who starts running a fever, the basics are this. So the body and the immune system recognizes that there's a foreign germ in the body most of the time, that's going to be a virus infection. Now, sometimes it can be a bacterial infection or some other kind of organism that can cause the infection. But for the most part, most children, when they run fever, it's because they either have a virus or a bacteria. And maybe on another podcast, when we get together, we can talk about the difference between viruses and bacteria, because there's a big difference. But the body recognizes this foreign entity. And it says, you know, you're not supposed to be here. And because through childhood, we get introduced to these 
viruses and germs and foreign entities. The immune system knows that one of the biggest ways to kill a virus or another germ is to elevate the body's temperature because viruses in particular cannot live in the presence of heat, especially extreme heat. So the body says, well, I know what to do about this. And so it begins to raise the body's temperature to the point where it slows down the virus's replication in the body. You know, the virus just keeps having babies. <laughs> it just keeps replicating and replicating and replicating and, and until it overwhelms the body. And so the, the fever's job is to intervene and to slow down the replication of the virus or to stop it completely, like to just kill the virus in the body. For the most part, when that happens, for viruses, we know it takes about three to four days to complete that work. So for 99% of viral illnesses that cause us to have a fever, it usually will take anywhere from three to four days to completely kill the virus so that that viral load, that's what we call viral load, is the number of replicated virus germs that is in our bloodstream so that that viral lobes begins to decrease or completely drop to zero. And that's why we have a fever. Is there a point or a number that parents should be concerned about? That's a great question. And I get that question every single day because I'm, I'm talking to parents about this every day. Technically, fever is defined as 100.4 and above. So 100.4 and above. And the way they came to that number was they literally engaged like tens of thousands of children, babies, children, teens, and adults. And they took their temperature three times a day. And they did this over, I think, several years time or, and then they studied the data. And what they realized is that most of us have a lower temperature in the morning, a higher temperature in the afternoon that can even go over a hundred normally. But when it got to 100.4 and above, it was more strongly associated with signs of illness. That was the cutoff point that was chosen by the medical community to recognize as fever. Now, I know a lot of people come in and they say, well, but my baby's temperature is normally 97. So if it's 100, that's a fever. Well, maybe yes, but probably no. We take that into account, certainly. But we really don't start looking at, at the body's temperature as fever technically until it gets to 100.4. We consider anything like 100.4 to like 101.4 to be kind of a low-grade fever. 101 to 103.9 is considered to be just a really good healthy fever. It means your immune system is strong, it's working hard, 
It's doing its job, killing the germ, whatever it is. And it just, we just consider that to be a good, healthy fever. If your child's temperature starts going over 104, 105, we raise an eyebrow because it's a little bit on the high end. And especially if you give the child medicine, if it kind of makes the fever go down, you know, overnight or for 12 hours or so, don't consider that to be breaking the fever. That's just controlling the fever. If it goes down, but then comes back up at night, we expect that to happen. If it's high like that though, and you give them an anti-fever medicine like ibuprofen or Tylenol, like, you know, Advil or Motrin or Tylenol, and it really doesn't come down very much. And your child is really seems to be suffering with the fever and it's not really being well controlled, then that's another reason to raise an eyebrow. So normally when kiddos get to that point where you're giving them medicine, but the fever is not responding and they're really suffering, that's when we kind of say, okay, that's, that, that's a point that maybe, maybe somebody should take a look at them. I've had kids sitting on my exam table because I'm still practicing seeing my exam at my exam table with a fever of 104.5 and just playing happy, drinking, peeing, not suffering. They look fabulous. I honestly don't give them anything for the fever because they look great. It's really more about how the child looks rather than the number. So we treat the patient, not the number. And that's kind of the take home there is really look at your child and say, well, I mean, yeah, he's taking more naps, not quite as playful, but he's still drinking and he's still trying to play and he's still eating and he's sleeping okay. You don't have to worry about it. Let's say my child has been running a temperature of 101 for three days. And like you said, he's playful and he's got wet diapers. He's eating, he's drinking, that should not be a big concern for me. Right. I would say, wait another day or two. Let give your child the opportunity with all of the support that you're giving, give him his body and the fever, the opportunity to do its job, complete the work, and then the fever will break. As soon as that viral load goes down or the virus is killed, eradicated from the body, your child's fever will completely dissipate. It'll just go away. Your child will break his own fever when there's no more reason to have fever. The point at which I encourage parents to check in with their pediatrician is if you get to day four or five and the fever is still kind of roaring, you know, kind of really going strong on day four or five, or if your child starts to look like they're getting worse instead of better, or if the fever is spiking really high and not really responding to the antipyretic, you know, the, the fever reducing medicine, those are the three things that should prompt you to call your pediatrician or, you know, come see me at the pediatric urgent care. Well, that's good advice. It's also comforting when your child is crying to know that you're doing the right thing. Absolutely. And one of the biggest things 
that we can do to support children's fever and support them when they have a fever that will make them feel so much better is to keep them really well hydrated. I have a little joke. I tell my parents and the patient, if they're old enough to understand me, you need to drink, 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 till you pee out your ears. When you have a fever, you need to drink till you pee out your ears. And if kiddos are maybe fussy or they don't seem to want anything, you can take a syringe. Even with babies, you can take a syringe and, and just syringe, you know, a teaspoon at a time into their mouth. I mean, they will swallow it. Just you have to just be really vigilant to just keep pouring in the fluids and keep them having wet diapers. That's the most important thing to help support them. They'll feel better. They won't have as many body aches with fever because fever always produces body aches. It always produces a headache in children. It helps them to, you know, to treat their headache. And, and they also lose their appetite when they have fever and there's a reason for that that we can talk about in just a minute. You want to do clear liquids and avoid dairy. They probably won't eat very well, but you can get the fluids into them. And then for older children, you can even do smoothies and uh, stuff like that. But um, yeah, they need to drink till they pee out their ears. It's one of the most important things to do when they've got a fever. My children always used to enjoy popsicles. Sometimes I would buy them from the store, but often I would just make our own with fruit and the kids enjoyed those. That was like a treat when you were sick. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, that's a, a perfect way to get, to get fluids in. Popsicles, jello is great. Chicken broth or chicken noodle soup, a watered down uh, 7-Up or Sprite or ginger ale, watered down sweet tea. So you always want the clear liquids that you're giving to have some sugar in it. You do not want to give anything diet, which is why I also tell parents, even if they're drinking a lot of water, put a little sugar in the water if you want to, because they need the sugar to help them fight the infection. And so they don't get hypoglycemic because then that's a whole nother ball of wax that's just could cause problems. So they always need something with a little sugar in it. So Pedialyte is really great as well. With loss of appetite, we do recommend, of course, all clear liquids. You want to avoid dairy just because it will curdle milk protein kind of curls on the stomach and will make them throw up or give them really bad nausea, which then also makes them not want to eat. So just avoid dairy products. And you also want to avoid anything red. Now, do you, do you know why? Well, I, no, I don't. <laughs> well, think about it now. Okay. If you're taking in stuff that's red, then usually in kiddos, those dyes, they go right through us. So then that means oh, okay. when they come out, they might come out in the urine or they might come out in the stool. So if your child does start maybe even vomiting or having diarrhea, if it comes out red because they've been drinking red Gatorade or red punch then or red Kool-Aid or something, we don't know if it's blood, it's going to look like blood. 
And that is super duper scary. So we just parents avoid anything red until their stomach is completely well and they're over the fever. So that way there won't be any confusion because that way, if they haven't had anything red and something comes out red, then it probably is blood. <laughs> so it's a, just a really great way to not panic. So that's a good, yeah. good point. Thank you. What else do we need to know about fevers? Just that they are self-limited. They have a beginning and an end, and that end is usually three to four days out. There are some fevers that will cause a rash, uh, a light red rash. And sometimes kids don't get the rash until 24 hours after they break their fever, especially if they have a virus, it's very typical that they would have a rash with the fever or uh, 24 hours after they break the fever. So that's normal. Fever does cause kiddos have headaches and body aches. They feel miserable. They need extra TLC. So hydration is really important. And then I would just say, again, look at your child and not at the number because I've had kids come in with 101 fever that, you know, had a horrible tummy ache and was bent over, you know, because their stomach hurts so badly and they had something really going on. But I've had kids with 104.5 that just looked awesome. And I didn't even treat it. I just said, just keep giving her fluids. So hydration is important. The big uh, thing that I'll end with, with regards to fever is that fever is our friend but it's also communicating to us that the body is fighting hard to kill something that has invaded the child's body. So if you do get to day four or day five and your child still has fever, especially by day five, you definitely need to be seen by somebody because the risk of having something bacterial or more serious goes up at that point. So that's the take home message is just treat it at home and see that they get through it. But if, if it goes high, stays high, or if they have fever for four to five days or more then they need to be seen. Allergy season is upon us. And I am one who suffers greatly with springtime allergies. How do you know if your child has allergies or it has a cold or has a sinus infection? What can parents look for to help distinguish? Is it allergy? Is it cold versus a sinus infection? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Let's start with allergies. Typically allergies have a certain set of symptoms that go along with it. Some of those can cross over into cold symptoms, head cold symptoms, virus, which are usually caused by viruses. But with allergies, we know that typically there's a lot of clear runny nose. There's a lot of sneezing, there's congestion in the nose, and they can have watery eyes and itchy eyes, a lot of itching around the nose, and sometimes clearing the throat a lot with if there's a lot of drainage. But mostly it's clear runny nose, no fever, no significant cough. The cough that accompanies um, allergies is generally dry, intermittent, occasional just sort of clearing your throat, kind of a cough. There's And then the secretions stay clear, but there's just a lot of itchiness everywhere. That's typical for allergy season. Is there anything parents can do at home 
to treat the allergies or should they contact the child's pediatrician? I think most pediatricians would say if you decide to give your child an over-the-counter allergy medicine like Claritin or Zyrtec or Allegra because they have the liquid form for children, they would want to just know that you're starting the medicine so they can kind of stay in touch with you about how it's going. And they would tell you if you're going to start the medicine, you need to stay on it consistently for two to three weeks to make sure it's working. These are not short-term medicines. It takes three to five days for an allergy medicine that you only give once or twice a day. It takes three to five days to, for the medicine to build up in the bloodstream enough to actually start even working on your child's allergy symptoms. So you really have to give it about a week of taking it consistently before you start looking for any beneficial effect. And then if you keep them on it for a week or two or three, if they're not having any effect, then you should definitely touch base with your pediatrician to see what else they might recommend. The second thing I would recommend is to use nasal saline spray. I recommend this often um, because it helps to wash pollen out of the nose. And if you use eye drops as well, it can help to wash pollen out of your eyes. And if you use those throughout the day, and by eye drops, I mean like the regular saline eye drops without any chemicals or medications in it. And the nasal spray is the same thing. It's just a gentle, simple saline for the nose. There's no extra chemicals in it. Use that several times a day. Those things can be very helpful. And then of course, wiping down surfaces in the house. If there's uh, pollen in, in that gets inside the house, um, wiping down surfaces and, and things where the, the child is uh, having contact that can also be helpful. And then the hair, washing the hair, even if you're just rinsing it and not using shampoo, but just washing it at night because pollen gets in the hair and then they sleep in it, gets in their bed. It's just using precautions. Oh, that's a great idea. I never thought about the washing hair at night because it does get on the sheets. How do you know the difference between allergies and a cold? Head colds are caused by viruses and they last anywhere from seven days to two weeks. So if you, if your child catches a cold, just know that he is going to be stuffy, that he's going to have congestion, nasal congestion. He may have pressure behind the eyes and in the face. He may have a lot of um, secretions that usually starts out clear and then it'll go to green and then back to clear as he's getting rid of the cold, as his body is eliminating the virus. Some children will also have a low grade fever um, as they begin fighting a cold, which of course, then if he's got fever, they've got all the associated symptoms that go along with fever as well. Most kids with colds do have a lot of pressure in the face. Their ears can pop. Uh, the reason for that is because there's a little tube inside the ear called the eustachian tube that is supposed to drain fluid out of the ear into the back of the 
where the nose is and into the throat, into the back of the nasal passages. And it also helps to equalize the pressure inside the ear. So when you get a cold, and sometimes it happens with allergies, but mostly it's when you get a cold, everything kind of gets swollen and inflamed and congested all in the nasal passages. And that also affects the eustachian tube opening. So that can actually swell shut and that will cause pressure to back up in the ears. Your ears feel like they're all clogged up. They might pop and be painful. Kids may, you know, say that their ear hurts. And then also you have more coughing with a cold. So you're going to be coughing a little bit more consistently. Most kids will not cough anything up unless they have a really sensitive gag reflex in the back of their throat. The coughing is generally because there's a lot of post-nasal drainage that goes down the back of the throat and they just have to cough uh, to clear that out. Something that is important to remember about drainage and secretions is that saline in the nose really does help every age child from infants all the way up to adults, but from infants to teenagers, nasal saline spray used often will get way back in the back of the nose and liquefy and break up all the thick, sticky, gooey phlegm that just gets stuck way in the back of the nose that then starts draining down the back of the throat. And as it drains down that mucus, it starts clogging up the airway and it'll sometimes hit that gag reflex and kids will gag and throw up or they'll start coughing and they'll, they'll cough up the phlegm. And the other reason why we cough is because the body does not want that phlegm to get into the windpipe, the trachea, and, and go into the lungs. And so when it hits that point, where it's kind of, you know, sounds gross, but it's sliding down back there and it's headed for the trachea and the lungs, the body goes, uh-uh, you can't, you can't do that. I've got to get you out of the way. You cannot get into the lungs. And so the body will cough to clear the airway and to get that phlegm out of the throat and that nasal passages will clear it out so it cannot get into the lungs. The body really is amazing and it has this incredible way of healing itself sometimes if we're just patient and listen to our bodies and listen to the bodies of our children. I, I know we don't have a lot of time left. I hesitate to bring it up, but it surrounds us for more than a year, so I have to. You have a child who has a cold. Even I, last year as an adult, when I caught a cold and we're surrounded by COVID, I was petrified and I knew I had a cold. I knew I didn't have COVID because I had pretty much isolated myself. But when I did have to go to the grocery store, if I coughed, I was so worried that everybody was going to look at me and think I had COVID. How do we know the difference between a common cold and COVID? Well, in children, um, because children are different than adults, you really do have to look at exposure and quarantine and how well, you know, whether or not you've been around other people, it is harder for children to get COVID. 
if they're less than 10 years of age. Really, the symptoms are the same in kids. I mean, the, the symptoms of the common cold are the symptoms of COVID in kids. Then you have to become a little bit more of a Sherlock Holmes and really start looking then, okay, where have we been? Have we kept our mask on? Have we been exposed to anybody without a mask and not socially distanced? Kids are very atypical in their presentation with COVID. A lot of children, believe it or not, just vomit. They just throw up. And that's their only symptom that they've got COVID. So it's not just that they've got cold symptoms. Kids get symptoms in almost every system in their bodies. Some kids will just have a headache and body aches, and that's that's all they all they get, and they never cough, not once. Some kids will just get a sore throat and nothing else, or they'll just have malaise. You know, they don't feel like playing; they're not playful. Playing is a really big sign for us because we know that kids that are still playful, even though they've got fever or they're sick, they're going to be fine. If they're still trying to play and they're still playing, then we have so much confidence that they're going to do great. It's the kids that just lay around and they can't, they just want to sleep. They don't want to wake up. They just feel bad. They feel miserable. They're not playful. Those are the kids that we go, okay, this kid is really sick because he's not playing. But as far as COVID is concerned, children less than 10 years of age, they lack a receptor in their nasal passages that is necessary for COVID to latch onto in order to start the infection in their nose that then of course goes into their lungs and into the rest of their body. So kids less than 10 generally don't have enough of those receptors to get sick with COVID in just a casual exposure. Any child who has less than six feet exposure to somebody that has COVID with no mask on, you know, that is not taking precautions, if they're close to that child, then they're going to get a pretty good dose of the virus if they're breathing anywhere near them. And those kids will get sick. And I think the youngest patient I've seen with COVID was three months old. And it was just because I know that there are many parents and grandparents listening but it was because there was a grandparent that was the daycare provider for this child, for this baby, because the mom had to go back to work. The grandparent was not observing a lot of social distancing, you know, was not wearing a mask. Of course, when they were taking care of the baby, the grandparent got COVID and was asymptomatic, um, had no idea that she had COVID and was taking care of this baby. And then all of a sudden started running a fever and got tested and was positive. And of course, then the baby became positive. So baby did fine, but it's just, that's how it happens. It's, it's just one of those things. So it is really harder for kids to get it. Right now, we are seeing a rise in childhood COVID cases. And it's not because they're going back to school. We haven't seen any outbreaks in daycares and schools. It's mostly happening. It's happening through family connections and occasionally from people outside the family, but most of it is happening from family connections. I've read where several of the companies who are producing the vaccines 
are actually testing it on children as young as two years old now. I'm hopeful we will find vaccinations for children too and can eradicate this pandemic. It's a good thing that they're doing that. Certainly, Uh, The reactions and the efficacy that we're seeing in adults will inform that process. It's going to be herd immunity that's going to help protect the children until they can come up with a safe vaccine uh, for children to receive. You know, the, the COVID shots do not prevent you from getting COVID. It's just like the flu. You know, you can still get the flu if you get the flu shot. It's just that It mitigates the severity of the illness. And the goal of the shots is that people will not get so sick that they have to be hospitalized or develop fibrosis in their lungs. Kind of like my mother right now, my mom has been in the hospital for nine months because of COVID. And she was ventilated for four months and then was on a tracheostomy until just last month. And getting ready to come home in the next couple of weeks. She's 82 years old and she's really been debilitated by it, but she's fought it. And we've many, many people told us to just let her go. She's lived a good life. And we're like, nope, we're fighting for her. And she fought and she's coming home. Fight for your people. Don't let them just convince you to let people go. But that's a little rabbit trail there. But I would just say in kiddos, it's just harder for them to get COVID. They don't do as poorly. They usually get over it really quickly. Most children, we believe, actually are asymptomatic and probably a lot of them have been already infected, but they just haven't had any symptoms. That's another thing that the scientific community is talking about is when should we start testing children to see if they have antibodies? That's something else we're looking at. I know we we have to say goodbye, but there's two things I want to ask you first. One is what words of wisdom do you have for us that we haven't covered? And then could you please tell our listeners website addresses again and how they can contact you? Oh, thank you. Uh, One little addition I would make to our conversation about colds is a cold is not a sinus infection. Children less than six years of age don't even have sinuses. So it's impossible for them to get a sinus infection before like the first grade or so. After that, they start developing their sinuses in earnest. And then we know that kids have a sinus infection if they've had a cold for at least a week to 10 days And if their phlegm goes from clear to green to thick and yellow, so they need to have had a cold for at least seven to 10 days and they start getting worse and they've got thick yellow, 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 yellow drainage out of their nose and that they're coughing it up and they, you know, have the headaches and the the sinus pressure. That's how we sort of diagnose sinus infections. So when your child has a cold, antibiotics do not help because it's viral. If it does turn into a sinus infection, that usually means that a bacteria has taken up house in your sinuses and that will respond to antibiotics. So we're very careful about not treating colds with antibiotics because that's definitely malpractice and it's the wrong thing to do. 
And then I just want to encourage everybody, you know, parents work so hard and grandparents, when you're taking care of your grandchildren or your children, it's a sometimes a thankless job. And so my goal is to put as many tools in your toolbox as I possibly can so that you feel empowered to care for your children and your grandchildren. My website will be done by the end of this week. So I do invite you to come check it out. It's called simplemedicine.net, N-E-T. Net. I'll be having some courses on there that you can sign up to take at, at your leisure um, eventually. If there's any information that you would like to see on the website or that you would like for me to cover in one of the parent uh, courses that I'm going to be offering, just contact me through the website and I'll be more than happy to cover those the topics. Well, Tess, we're certainly looking forward to your website, to your book, to your podcast. And be sure to let me know when that is all up so I can let my listeners know too. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Osborne Books and More. It's a 30-year-old company that started because of a love of reading. The books are educational and are appropriate for children from infancy up to those who enjoy reading middle grade fiction. You won't find these books in big box stores. They only are sold from the sales consultant directly to the consumer. I've known Cassie for a couple of years now, and I enjoy my working relationship with her, and I wanted her to acquaint you with the company in case you have never heard of these incredible books. Osborne wanted the company to appeal to children all through his life. Peter Osborne actually decided to start this company when he found out he was going to be a father. So he wanted it to be long lasting. He wanted it to grow with the child. He wanted books to be interesting and appealing to the child to where that the books were so great that you even made you want to like eat them, which he has pictures of kids trying, you know, babies trying to eat the books. So that's what he wanted. He wanted kids to just gobble up the information, want be attracted to them so that they're wanting to read and to be drawn to literacy. I am especially interested in the science books, that science is not scary and that it's all around us and everything that we do and see and breathe and smell and eat all has a scientific basis. So can you tell us about some of the titles that you have in the science category? Well, the first one that comes to mind is 100 Science Experiments, which of course is great. We have 50 science things to make and do, so that's more of your hands-on stuff. We also have an encyclopedia of science. We also have a box set of science that covers planets and earthquakes and space and storms and hurricanes, weather, astronomy, your body. We also have for the very young ones, to start out with. So they don't leave anybody out. We have from three years and up, we have my very first science book. They have look inside science with the flap answers and questions and answers about science. They really try make a big variety of it. We have science encyclopedia. We even have books on science in the kitchen. They've also recently come out with like the biology of bananas. And it will show you discover and learn with 20 experiments. It also includes 
an experiment for kitchen science. So they are actively trying to continue to increase our science books as well. And along with the bananas one, we have one that's a chemistry of cola, the physics of popcorn, the math of a milkshake. So they try to pull in everyday things to help make science fun and interesting. When I was a child, the space exploration was in its infancy. Every time there was a launch or a splashdown, our school would go to the cafeteria and we would watch these events on a small television. Just this past week, we actually landed another rover on Mars that will help us explore that planet and possibly lead to a colony there of scientists. And I am so excited about that. And I look on your catalog and you have all kinds of books about astronomy and space book and the universe. And it's exciting to see where your company is, is really helping children learn about space travel. We definitely appeal to like all ages for that. We have activity books for space. We have the White Queen space books. We have hundred things to know about space, just your basic facts about space. We have fun fiction books about dogs in space. Or if you really do like space, we have a new book that's called I Like Space. What jobs are there? And then you can look through that and you can find out what books are, what jobs there are that would help you interact with space. We also have, as part of our academy series, we actually have an astronaut academy. And what's great about this series is that it's kind of like a mini course to see if it, you'd want to be an astronaut. It gives you different activities. It gives you like day in the life types of things. It's kind of like a class to attend as part of your training. If you were pretending to, if you're going to be an astronaut, this is what you would go through. So it kind of is like a little taste of it to see if an astronaut would be a good fit for you. Um, we kind of call these like our pre-college courses. Um, just you're saving all the money on college to figure out if it's a good fit for you. So you're only spending $13 instead of thousands of dollars. We just um, had a segment on career exploration and how summer camps and books can really help students figure out what their personalities are and their strengths and how to build on that. So that's an excellent book to add to the library. Yes, it definitely helps. Those Academy books are great. We have several of them in different categories too. So they're very good for figuring out what you want to do as well as I, the, I like space animals, figure like, see if those jobs for you. What are some of the other Academy books? Engineer, chef, doctor, entrepreneur, scientist, veterinarian, architect, coding, can currently think of at the moment, but they're always adding and adjusting them. Most little boys and some little girls are absolutely infatuated with dinosaurs. And you have several dinosaur titles. Anytime someone says they like dinosaurs, we probably have a good 30 titles if I was guessing. And they range from literally infants to young adults uh, we have that's not my dinosaur we have don't tickle the dinosaur and those are touchy-feely books for your infants then you have lift the flap dinosaurs you have a dinosaur timeline you have we have puzzles and our puzzles come with books too that talk about the puzzles we have you know 100 or 199 dinosaurs books just to list out the different dinosaurs. Um, 
we have fiction books like Dirty Dinosaur or How to Feed Your Dinosaur. We have fingerprint activities, dinosaurs, um, books where you can use water to paint for dinosaurs. There's sticker books, coloring books. There's such a wide variety that I could go on and on about our dinosaur selection. There's so many, which is great because it appeals to all the ages. It can grow with them. It can just keep them interested all their lives. So what are some of your favorite books? I have several. I really like our series. It started with All Better and it included five reusable sticker band-aids. And I love how reusable these stickers are. Once they lose their stickiness, you rinse them off, you let them dry and the stickers are good as new. And those ones I like just because you can use them over and over, especially All Better. It started out with band-aids. Kids are always falling and getting hurt. And band-aids always tend to make it better. I also like the very first question and answers. We have a great one, especially for this past year, like what are germs or what's a potty for? Why do things die? It answers all of those never-ending questions that kids have. Um, like what, what is a star? And it, that's one of my favorite ones because it, it shows you what a star looks like from here on earth. Like it just looks like a normal shaped star, but then you open the lift the flaps and it actually shows you the big ball of fire or gas. Um, I also like our nibble series with the being the book monster. My kids really enjoy that. We have the plush that goes with it and they chase each other around the house with it. I also enjoy don't tickle series because it combines the fun sounds with the touchy feely. I also adore our music books that play Mozart or calming music. Uh, we have Seasons and Nutcracker. I just, I just love sounds and books um, put together and it's a great fit. Our illustrated originals are gorgeous with their illustrations and their stories. There's so many good things in Osborne. It's really hard just to narrow it down, but those are some of my top favorites. I like the fact that you have uh, like there's a French word book and you actually have links where you can hear a native speaker speak the words and phrases. A lot of our books have what we call internet resources. So if you ever see our titles, it has an IR behind it, it means internet resources, which means that they have extra stuff that you can read for them. Some of them have QR codes too, as well, that will take you to someone reading you those French words, our phonics books that have the QR codes will actually read the book to the child as well. Usborn, so their whole mission is that the education of our children depend on us now. Children are our future. So their goal is to deliver educational excellence one book at a time, while also fostering strong family values and having these books make a lasting impact print on children for their lifetime. Does the company have in-house writers or do they take proposals from authors? The U.S. has Usborne, which is its own thing, plus Kane Miller. So Usborne itself is a U.K. company over in the U.K. and they do everything in-house. They'll they'll write the book, they'll buy it, they'll put do the illustrations, they'll create the initial copy of the book all in-house and then I believe they send it off to be printed I'm not sure if it's local or somewhere there but they do everything in-house I'm not exactly sure how Kane Miller does it 
They're a little bit different. I just have heard about the Osborne side of things. Peter Osborne actually does a contest every year for the consultants where he asks everybody to submit ideas for stories. And he does pick several to actually make books off and continue and make their ideas come to life. So is there anything particular you want our, our listeners to know? I was going to go over, so I was wanting to talk about why books are important for not just kids, but for everybody. Uh, first, they develop, they help the mind develop cognitive simulation, and it also exercises the brain. It's just like as if you're exercising any other part of your body, using your brain to read, it help, read helps exercise those muscles. It can also help with sharpening your focus and helping you concentrate on things that are important. They also help with your vocabulary and knowledge. The more you read, the more words you learn, because if you don't know a word, then the act of searching for the definition helps your brain retain that new word. Reading can also help with stress and tension relief by helping you kind of escape your daily world. It takes you to, an, it transports you to a different place. You're learning about different cultures sometimes, characters in a whole different world, many escape. And by doing that escape, it can also help those with depression, not that it's a, a full-on fix for depression, but it can help give them a break just because they're focusing on something else. Um, NCU also published that reading stimulates the brain, particularly the part of the brain that helps with memory and attention. So it helps with your memory and your focus. By reading, you are familiarizing yourself with different writing styles, so it can help you with your writing abilities. Um, and as well as it's just for entertainment purposes as well. I mean, a lot of our movies that we enjoy come straight from books. They were a book before they were a movie. So obviously, if they were good enough to be a movie, then they're good enough. They're great to read because people always say the book is better. Um, and then I wanted to talk about how different aspects of books, different traits of books have different properties that help children grow. So activity books, experiment books, they help with hands-on learning. It helps empowers the child because it helps build their confidence, helps build a passion because they find something that interests them and they keep wanting to learn about it. Books where you have to find things in it, like search uh, things to spot books, they help practice your visual discernment, helps build your vocabulary because you're talking about the different pictures you see. There are also books where it's like, hey, choose which, which form of transportation would you like to take? Do you want a train? Do you want a car? Do you want a carriage, a chariot? Do you want to sit on a chair and have people carry you? And that can just get you closer to your child. It's a quality time thing. It also is a peek inside to their little brains, what they're thinking, how they're experiencing things, what their imagination takes them to. Chapter books are great for helping you, you pre-live experiences. So when you do have experiences in your life, you've already experienced some of those same experiences or feelings. So you can apply what you've read to your new experience. 
helps you learn about feelings um, as well as experiencing new things, whether it's learning about a new culture, learning, seeing things from a different perspective. Fiction books give children a a world in which to dream and to create. Um, Nonfiction is also great for teaching children. What I love about Usborne's nonfiction is that they keep it in small little short snippets on the pages. The pages are colorful. So it helps you retain the information instead of having to pick out what sentence in a huge paragraph you need. It's small and bite-sized, so it's easier to recall and to remember. A sensory book, so books that lift the flaps are great for learning because it helps with object permanence as well as later on in life when you're interacting with the book, you're lifting flaps. It helps you remember the information under it because then you're like, oh, I that flap was on this page where this information was. And so it kind of just helps you correlate all the information together to help recall it. So, and then it helps with those fine motor skills too, for the little ones who are lifting those flaps or our sticker books are great for creativity as well as those fine motor skills. Or if it's a page where you're trying to find a specific sticker to go on that page, it's problem solving. White clean books are great too, because it builds your skills from repetition, you're told to, you know, keep practicing until you get it. That's what our white clean books are. It's practicing. You, it's a worksheet you can do over and over. It's great for those little ones who are just learning to use pencils and it helps with their pencil grips and getting comfortable with writing and just moving the, the writing utensil across the page as well as rhyming books, phonics books, they help with putting the same sounds together, um, rhyming, the sing-song type of reading. It encourages reading with expression. Children really do well with repetition too. Um, Helps them with, with repetition and they start learning the words and then they get more confident. And then with rhyming too, the children can anticipate what word is gonna come next. So it helps get their critical thinking skills working too. And then step-by-step instructions, it helps teaches them to follow directions. We're always asking children to do things and instruction books, step-by-step drawing books, science experiments. It just teaches their skills. Again, following directions. It can also, if you're an activity you guys can do together, then it can also build quality time and help build your relationships with the child as well. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.